So, uh, super excited here to be here today with Andy Johns, um, who is a uh, recognized growth expert, um, executive. Um, so Andy, why don't you just give a little bit about your background and kind of sure. what you've been doing the last few years. Um, it's basically been 15 years of startups. Um, I was fortunate to spend time at Facebook, um, then Twitter, then Bora. Spent a bit of time at Greylock Partners as an entrepreneur resident. Just some interesting companies. <laughs> yeah, quickly. Yeah. And then uh, I made my way over to Wealthfront, where I spent the last five years and uh, I've been the president of the company. Um, along the way, most of my work has been focused on product and growth. Um, the first really 10 years of it was focused on growth, figuring out how to scale adoption and engagement of consumer products. And then I uh, really spent the last five years focused on core classic consumer product development. Um, so that I could be skilled at building innovative products to unlock growth through that approach, not just the, the method of growth that we now know today is sort of data-driven and optimization-oriented. Got it. And so, and the, you, you know, you've been working in this kind of multiple different companies, multiple different environments, multiple different kind of use cases. Um, and, uh, and, and you're sharing with us that you get, um, you get asked by so many companies about like, I've kind of got this sort of like, I'm starting to see the kind of resemblance of product market fit. Right. And then how do I, how do I grow from there? And, and like, and I'm sure you've got some lessons and some tips from there. Can you, you yeah. know, how do you think about that? Or how should like early stage founders be thinking about this? Yeah, so it's not a surprise that basically every startup wants to grow. <laughs> they want millions of users and they want to get there quickly. And so they usually reach out and they'll ask the question of, how do I set up my growth team? And the origin of that comes from really going back to, I think, 2011, 2012, where the growth teams within Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter received a bit of publicity. They were written about um, as if it was the secret sauce behind those companies. And certainly it played an important role. Uh, growth team, especially within the network effects business, plays an important role. Um, and so I think the majority of the uh, startup world latched on to those examples and they said, okay, therefore, uh, since they have millions of users and they had a growth team, therefore I need a growth team. Mm -hmm. And it was this like, one-size-fits-all approach to thinking about growth. And, and so usually they'll come to me and they'll say, I, I want to build a growth team, we're, we're trying to grow more quickly, can you help me think through the structure of my growth team? And the thing that I do is I, I take a step back and try and reorient, reorient the discussion. So the way I think about it is uh, growth can come from multiple disciplines and multiple sources. But at the end of the day, everybody at the company, one way or another, is working on growth. The two higher level categories of things you can do that stimulate growth can be new product innovation, which is delivering new value to your existing users to get them more engaged such that you grow as a result of that, or by creating new innovative products that helps you unlock and appeal to different parts of the market you haven't appealed to before. So there's a lot of growth that can come from innovation. It's just, it can be hit or miss, right? Because the nature of innovation is you're, you're sort of going out on a ledge and saying, I need to build something new and I have the suspicion that if I build it, we're gonna succeed in a way that we haven't succeeded so far. Um, and then there's the other type of growth, which is really consistent with that Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter growth team and the aura around that, which is very data-driven and optimization-oriented. And so those teams will run experiments in the product, experiments through the marketing channels, will be very, very data-oriented, almost predominantly data-oriented in how they make decisions. And then they're comfortable not swinging for the fences necessarily, but looking for these 5, 10, 20% lifts in their current rate of growth and getting there through these, these uh, sometimes clever optimizations of the products that they already have today. 
And so when I take that step back, I say growth can come from both. And if your objective is growth as a company, you've got to figure out the balance between optimization and innovation and what is appropriate for your type of business right now. Mm -hmm. And what the decision that you make on that today, it may actually change in a year or two where you decide you need to shift the balance between optimization and innovation. And so the general guidance I give, especially for the earlier stage companies that have some amount of traction and liftoff, I remind them that the reason they got there was through innovating to begin with. And just because yeah. they have some traction, they got up off the ground, to not all of a sudden turn a blind eye to the method of innovative product development that got them there. And going out on a limb with, with some new idea and some suspicion that this thing may work. And then as a result, they're all hands on deck just doing this optimization-based approach yeah. to growth. And so they end up skewing from being an innovative early startup to, hey, everyone, let's just run A-B tests all day. And that may, stimulate some additional growth, but I've seen it over and over and over again. And I was actually just on a board, uh, board meeting this morning with a company that has been two to three years into optimization mode and their, their growth is completely flatlined. And they're sitting there shaking their head thinking like, we must not be running the right experiments. When the thing I'm trying to pound into them is because optimization is not going to do it for you anymore. Yeah. And you've got to go back to the drawing board of knowing how to build really compelling products that helps you unlock different parts of the market that you're not appealing to today, or that enable your existing customers to engage with you much more deeply than they currently are. Yeah, it, make, it makes total sense. I know from my own experience, there was um, at, at Trulia, and I, you know, I came from a sort of we didn't call it growth then, but it was it was kind of growth back in Web 1.0 era. So I was like scaling a, a travel business, and then I, I kind of took that to online real estate um, and we were doing sort of terrific growth stuff and then 2008 hit and we kind of went from this kind of innovation mode yeah. to like a risk averse mode and so like innovation kind of slowed down and optimization was the kind of like flavor of the day and it and it, it sort of gets you it, it, it didn't get you out of the whole achieved in local optima um, local maxima and um, I guess, I guess, as you as you've seen the, the companies you work with, how do you how do you find this right balance between innovation yeah. and optimization? Because there's all this kind of often there's low hanging fruit yeah. until it's being picked off. Um, and, and companies, I mean, you see in big companies that they're devoid of innovation. Um, and if you lose that muscle, then it's super hard to get back. How do you how do you find the balance in the right time? So I, I start by trying to give them a couple simple ways of thinking about. So the, the analogy I tend to use with them so that they have language that they can use internally when having these strategic discussions is they need to think of their their team and their product roadmap almost like an investment portfolio, right? In an investment portfolio, you want some diversity of stocks and you want some bonds. Mm -hmm. Stocks are higher risk, higher return. And you're really aiming for the long-term trajectory that it puts you on. And that's the reason why younger investors someone like myself who's 36 but might not retire until I'm 70, um, it, it makes sense for me to have a lot of stocks in my portfolio because I'm aiming for an objective that is well off into the future. And it requires that my portfolio assumes a higher level of risk to get mm -hmm. there. Um, and then the bonds are the lower risk, the lower return. And the way I map that to uh, a growth team or a growth mentality versus core product development is a growth team tends to be your bonds because they're running lower risk experiments. They're lower risk because 
you turn on the experiment and it sucks, it's 30% worse mm -hmm. than, the, than the control, just turn it off. Very little risk. Um, and then core product development and innovation, those are your stocks. And so I start by giving more them- equity, more risk. That's right. It's no surprise that you spent the last few years in uh, <laughs> right. financial services. <laughs> that's right. Type Investing has occupied my brain yeah. the last five years. And it turns out that it actually offers the fundamentals of good investing, offers a lot of philosophical insight to the fundamentals of great company building. Yeah. Um, and, and so I give them that language and say, your job is to figure out that right balance. And that balance is at least in part dependent on what is this multi-year goal that you've set out in front of you. And can you draw a line to that goal based on some balance between the two? So for example, um, at, at Facebook this was, we exited 2008 uh, with just over 100 million monthly active users. The, the management team and the board got together and they set the goal for the company in 2009, which was to exit the year at 300 million monthly active users. So we had to go from 100 million to 300 million. And that just seemed like a preposterous idea. It was a stretch goal, huge stretch goal. But they dangled a big carrot in front of a bunch of people there that if we hit that, uh, we would be rewarded for it. Um, and so we went into, into thinking mode, at least within the growth team, and we said, okay, how do we close that gap? classic sort of gap analysis between like I'm here, I'm gonna get there, how do I bridge it? And we were growing our active users at one and a half percent week over week. And we did the math and we said, well, if we just grow at one and a half percent week over week over the next year, we're gonna come up short of 300 billion. We somewhere in the ballpark of two, 220 million. So we said, well, that's not gonna get us there. But what if we grow at 2% a week? And it turned out, the math was pretty straight, if we grew at 2% week over week for 52 sustained weeks, we would exit the year at right around 300 million. So within the growth team, we said, is it possible for us to optimize our way towards 2% weekly growth from 1.5% weekly growth? And with a couple of days of sort of roadmap planning and work and some, some rough napkin math, we said, okay, this is achievable. Because we thought there was enough low-hanging fruit that through experimentation we could increase the sign-up rate and we could increase reactivation rates and we could lower churn rates by these 10-20% amounts such that we could get to that 2% weekly growth rate. That's effectively what we did. And at that time in the business and for the goal that was set, that was the appropriate mechanism to get us there. And so there was a rather significant investment in the growth team. Um, and that was just really just breaking down the flow. So this is the user journey, picking it apart and saying, well, if I can sort of like eke out, you know, small percentage gains, the compound impact of that That's right. has this kind of like mm -hmm. top line impact in, right. in terms of the daily active users. But let's say you're an earlier stage startup and your seed stage, you're doing a million a year of annualized revenue um, and it's growing at a moderate pace. But you know that if you want to go from, you know, seed to series A to B that you're going to have to throw in a 10x in the next couple, couple of years, somewhere in there. Um, and if you just optimize the existing product you have today, in the vast majority of cases, unless the rate of growth mm -hmm. is already exceptional, in the vast majority of those cases you're not going to be able to produce that 10x. So there's got to be some, some balance of growth coming from new product innovation. Uh, so it's really stage dependent and goal dependent and the magnitude of the gap to that goal. That's why I said earlier on, this balance of, of growth coming from an optimization approach versus an innovation approach, um, it's going to shift during certain periods in, in the company's history. And 
um, that's where I think as a management team or founders of the company, giving them that language um, and that mental model such that when they look at the org chart, they're like, well, about 70% of our people are actually working on building new products, about 30% are working on this growth team. And given our goals and objectives and how we need to swing for the fence to go from Series A to Series B, it actually seems about right. Yeah. Um, I'd say that yeah, that's usually how I guide them towards that. Um, there can be an exception to the rule. There usually is. I think the exception is when it comes to businesses that, that um, NFX is, is uniquely focused on, which are network effect businesses. Because let's say I'm, I'm at Facebook or I'm at Twitter or at LinkedIn and I'm working on the growth team and I've figured out a way th through which I can optimize the rate at which somebody adds a friend or a follower makes a connection by 20, 30 percent. Mm -hmm. That behavior is the underlying driver of the network effect itself. And that has compounding effects on the overall growth of the business. So if I can optimize that underlying driver of the network effect itself, uh, that, that can be huge. Yeah. And maybe I don't need to go into product innovation mode. And when I ended up at Twitter, the, the argument that I was making in 2010 was, hey, we're at you know, 40, 50 million monthly active users. There's actually a clear path to get to 500 million monthly active users in a handful of years or less if we take this optimization-based approach. Because I believe that the product was good enough and had most of the mechanics of what it needed to be able to operate at that, th at that scale, so long as we really dialed in those underlying drivers. Yeah, so, it's, so not just looking at the flows and sort of squeezing whatever's in there, but finding the trigger metrics or finding the sort of density um, and as you know, in network for businesses, it's it's getting into that critical mass in certain kind of use behavior, or supply side or demand side that starts to kind of kick in this increase of return. And, you start, and, you're, and if you're instrumenting your, your systems well enough, you'll see that in the data. Yeah. And that and that and I think if you top companies that are instrumenting, they they can it's easier for them either kind of intuitively or through data to kind of see where their kind of like optimizations are kind of hitting out. So here's a general rule of thumb that, that I use and that I share with the companies that reach out. If it is a network effect business, if it's a, a Facebook, LinkedIn sort of thing, or if it's a two-sided marketplace or a three-sided marketplace, um, deciding to implement a growth team to tactically optimize those drivers earlier, I'm, I'm usually okay with that. I'm like, yeah, go ahead and do that. If it's not a, a natural monopoly type of business, it's not one of those network, network effect businesses, the way in which you win your market can be drastically different. So I did this exercise early on with, the, with some of the folks at, at uh, Wealthfront. I said, okay, we want to build the next Charles Schwab, like one of the great financial institutions. Uh, Schwab has I don't know, about four trillion of assets mm -hmm. that it amassed over 50, 60 years. Um, are we going to get to a trillion of assets under management by just having a more optimized sign-up flow? <laughs> the answer to that one's self-evident. It's like, no, it's not actually that easy. We actually need to be on the lead from a financial products perspective where we build financial products and services that are much more delightful for the customer and that are superior relative to what those large financial institutions can provide. And as a result, we will amass significant assets over time through classic product innovation. And so if it's not a natural monopoly type of business, Generally speaking, with most of the early stage startups and that are reaching out to me thinking about building a growth team, I very quickly talk them off. Yeah. And I guess it 
you know, as, as we were talking about, it requires the whole organizational focus. So you're not just, often in growth teams, you have um, the DNA can often be highly, quantita highly quantitative, highly analytical, and you need that kind of like innovation from, from other parts of the organization. So, and so yeah. where does that, like, where do you see this kind of product innovation coming from in, in, in these Very teams? few places. To be honest with you, the um, I'm really not too keen on the, the focus of product development in consumer tech companies over the last call it five to seven years. Um, so for example, um, when I interview product managers, in the vast majority of cases they can write SQL queries um, and describe the, the, the basics of A-B testing methodology. Uh, but the vast majority of them have no clue how to actually talk to a customer and derive key insights and, and how to, like the art and the science of having great customer conversations through the classic art of customer development. It's like no one knows about Steve Blank, <laughs> right? But everyone knows about growth hacking. Yeah. And that is a disaster from my perspective. I, I, the, the thing I want to talk about more, um, more publicly and write about is there needs to be this correction away from everyone writes SQL queries and stare at, at metric dashboards. And there needs to be a significant push in the direction of get out of the building and learn how to talk to people and know how to run a really well-designed product development process that spits out high quality products at a fast pace. Mm. And the vast majority of companies don't know how to do that well. And the overwhelming percentage of, of product managers that I've worked with or that I've interviewed um, or that founders are looking for, they have no clue how to do it. It's a classic kind of innovative dilemma. The big companies scale up and they become yeah. resistant to kind of innovation because things are working well. And I imagine there's a lot of like the highly innovative product managers are kind of starting their own startups in Silicon exactly. Valley and doing their own thing and getting out of the kind of uh, the complicated politics that can exist in some of these these, these bigger organizations. Like the PM as the CEO, you know, the CEO of the product, which has its, that, that terminology has a bit of a legacy there. Like it is a dying breed of PMs who can actually be the CEO and have that feel for the product and for the customer because that's what a CEO has. Um, and, and you're totally right. That's what they end up doing. The ones who are great at it, they just go start a company. So, what, so as you think about, so, so we talked about this, this dearth of um, innovation and product innovation and growth uh, and growth teams. What are some of the other mistakes that startups make? In, uh, um, yeah. <laughs> this, is a, this is a fun one. Um, right at that point in which they raise the first meaningful financing of, call it you know, 10 million bucks, where they can take a team from you know, five to 10 people and maybe scale it up to say 30. And they're in a position to be able to do multiple things at once for the first time. And then in that, that enthusiasm to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time, so to speak, uh, they stub out an org chart, a new one. They're like, this is the new org chart. This is what's gonna set us up to receive this infusion of capital which we'll then use to hire more people and we'll slot these people into this newly designed org chart so we can do multiple things at the same time. Um, and they make two classic mistakes. The first is they designed this org that's then a mile wide and an inch deep. Uh, so I, I was meeting with a company recently right in this position. They brought in a significant amount of money in the Series A. They could scale to 30 or 40 people right away. And then they stubbed out six seven teams on this hypothetical uh, org chart. Uh, 
and uh, I asked them to indicate the, the number of engineers for allocated for each of those teams. And uh, two of the teams had half an engineer. And so I asked them the question, I was like, if I put half a basketball player on the court, do I have a basketball team? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the, the answer is no. <laughs> and I said, well, you've got half a basketball player on this team. And so that's not a team. I need you to consolidate this because you're fooling yourself into believing that you can right. do all six of these things in parallel. You might be able to do three. That's probably a stretch. But six is, is unrealistic. So they need to consolidate so they're not a mile wide and an inch deep. And then the second problem they make, or a mistake they make, goes back to the stuff I've been saying, which is then they stub out these teams that through the, the language of the name of the team itself, through the metric goals that they pick, it's clear that they're optimizing solely for the benefit of the business, mm -hmm. and they're not thinking about how do I build great product for the customer. So an example would be if it's a su subscription company, which this one was, they had a team, and the name of the team was Lifetime Value. <laughs> because, of course, they want to increase the lifetime value. Finance people. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. They want to increase lifetime value because that yeah. meant they make more money and you know everything keeps growing. Yeah. Um, but think about the junior product manager who's now working on this team, who doesn't have enough experience and judgment yet to understand the pitfalls associated with calling a team the lifetime value team. Because, as, as James actually likes to say, is you know language is product. And... The same is true is like your org chart, the language you use, it massively influences how people think about what to build within their teams. Mm -hmm. And so you have this junior product manager who says, okay, I'm on the lifetime value team. My core metric is to improve lifetime value. Therefore, I'm going to load my roadmap with things that improve lifetime value for the business. And I look at the roadmap and it's got things like A-B tests around uh, the subscription pricing. Um, and other sort of incremental optimizations. And that's totally fair and reasonable. You should experiment with those things because there's likely to be a nice lever in there. But then I asked him, I was like, which of these teams are where on this roadmap are you building great new products or determining what great new products to build so that your customer will more deeply engage with you because you solved a meaningful problem for them, which then in turn increases lifetime value. So they're not looking at core customer needs Building products that sort of fill those customer needs, either kind of and they, they stated explicitly or kind of inferred by other activity, and that's that's the core activity. They, they build that into the language of the org chart, yeah. And then all of a sudden, so they don't have permission to innovate. That's right. And then all of a sudden, they're two years into it, and they're like, "Wait, we've just been running A/B tests and, and fiddling with little dials and yeah. knobs the whole time, and lo and behold, we're not on track for our big ten X." Yeah. So those are the that org chart disaster, and I can't blame them because where do you go to school for that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah a, you don't learn that yeah. anywhere. And, and you think, and your board member has been saying to you like, <laughs> we need to update the lifetime value, lifetime we need value to you get that, that. And, right, and, and sort of thinking with a product customer mindset from the That's outset right. about how you orientate that through the organization. So startups need to really incorporate their customer needs and the external product experience into their ex internal organizational chart and orientate the, the, the organization and align it with ultimately the customer needs rather than some financial metrics or kind of or products, product execution goals. That's right, because the, the, the notion of shipping the org chart, which a couple of very successful operators well before our time in, in technology in the Valley, they identified this a long time ago. They said there's this immutable law that the org you design makes its way into your product. 
hence shipping the org chart. And so for example, if I set up a growth team and one of the primary functions is to run experiments, lo and behold, six months later, I have a bunch more A-B tests running in my product. We, we went through that exercise and we said, well, we need to help people with their investing and we need to be exceptional from that standpoint. But we also need to help them uh, with their financial planning. Because if you have this amazing financial plan, the things you invest in and how you should invest make sense in the context of your financial plan. And then there's this third thing that we need to do, which I'm not going to spill the beans on yet, but that's coming out shortly, that if, if we help the customer with those three things, well then we have an amazing product. And we're willing to take the leap of faith that if we execute well on those three things, it'll put us on this longer term arc to get there. And uh, it, it was a really transformational moment for the, for the company. And now the product is really rich from an investment product standpoint. It's got this amazing financial planning experience built into it and customers are engaging in that with a, at a high rate. And then there's this third arc that's coming out shortly. Yeah. Um, and we suspect the same thing will happen. And then there's a little bit of optimization that ha happens on the side. It's fa yeah, it's fascinating how these, how these kind of um, unexpected consequences of organizational design, which defines how you allocate resources and how you incent activity, which, which has this downstream behavior. So, so 2019, um, like, you know, it feels like growth has been around for, or the sort of term growth has been around for more than a decade. Like, what, what do you see, like, you know, some things stay the same, some things different. What do you see, like, the top um, companies and top practitioners doing perhaps in 2019 that they this kind of new and novel and innovative that, that mm. they weren't they weren't doing before. Well, that's a good question. Um, if you go to one of my favorite tools, Google Trends, and you enter in the keyword growth hacking, uh, which is you know that's been the the monkey of uh, kind yeah, of this activity flavor of the moment, yeah. right? Um, and it kind of took on a life of its own. And you look at the, the search trends on that, at a global perspective, it's still kind of up and to the right. Uh, but it, if you unpack it a little bit, and you start looking on a country by country basis, like in the US, it's, it's declining asymptotically towards zero. Right? It, it's, it started its descent. In the UK, the same thing. These are a few of the markets that picked up on that belief system earlier. And if you look at a few other countries in, in Asia, Europe, Latin America, it's, it's still at the earlier stage of growth hacking, sort of taking a life there and, and, and growing. And they haven't necessarily started its descent, but I, I expect it, um, given another year or two, um, for that belief system to mostly die down. Um, now, if you contrast that with... And is that, and is that because growth is basically integral to a product manager's Role or then, and so it's no longer the discrete thing, or, is, or yeah, is it? I think it's a lagging indicator that a bunch of startups then try to hire growth hackers, try to build growth teams, and they didn't succeed despite doing that. And so the proof is in the pudding. It's like, guess what? Just hiring this growth hacker or building a growth team isn't the sil silver bullet. And and so I think the the search trends is just a lagging indicator of the realization that has been happening over the last couple of years. Now, if you contrast that with search query volume for product market fit, there's a couple things that stand out. Is it's getting traction, and you, I, I would say product market fit is demonstrating product market fit in terms of, of the search query volume and the intent there. And I hope that that continues because 
it's it's almost like looking at the graphs of MySpace versus Facebook in 2008, mm -hmm. where they were then starting to change their trajectories, and one's going to quickly eclipse the other. And um, I'm, I'm actually working on a blog post on this right now, and I'm looking forward to putting it out. But I expect that to happen. And so, um, do I have any specific theories? That's, I mean, that's a great thing, right? It's, <laughs> like, it's like, finally, people are not kind of like <laughs> squeezing the kind of like lemon, um, yeah. where there's no juice left in it, and they're not that's hacking. Right. That's right. They're doing the, the good stuff. Now, I don't want us to throw the baby out with the bathwater. There are very, very good growth operators and practitioners. Uh, Brian Balfour running the Reforge series um, and a handful of other growth folks who have now actually gone into the investing side. Um, Andrew Janet, Andreessen Horowitz. There are people who are very good at understanding growth holistically because I, I think they would agree uh, a lot with the things that I mentioned. And the, the, the things that they've learned and the curriculums and the teachings that they provide, I think that stuff is still legitimate today and will be into the future. Uh, for example, how to think about uh, uh, retention and activation, and those are useful frameworks. Uh, but I do think it's going to be supplanted by much more rigorous focus, or hopefully, on people going back to the basics of how do you establish product market fit, which is identifying the target customer, really understanding them, and doing that through this iterative qualitative process that's very hard and labor intensive and then building a product that ultimately delivers enough value for that customer such that they're so happy and they're delighted by the experience that they can't help but tell somebody else about it. Yeah. And that is the wind in the sails of organic growth that if you establish that it is really hard to compete against that. And I, so I don't have any specific predictions around 2019. Uh, but a, a more broad prediction 2019 and beyond, which I think is going to be predicated on, let's get back to being innovative. Super. Awesome. Well, thanks, Andy. Yeah. Those are awesome conversation insights. Yeah. Thank you for having Thanks. Me. Appreciate it.